lifted up and filled with thanksgiving as we sing about the gospel together. Let us now open God's word together and continue to look into the matchless grace of Jesus Christ. We are in our second sermon in our uh, time in the Gospel of John, so go ahead and open with me to John chapter 1. If you don't have a Bible, you're welcome to use the Black Pew Bible in front of you. You're also welcome to take it home and read it and study it. This morning's text is going to be John chapter 1, verses 4 through 13. I'll read aloud, read along with me as I do. In him, that is Jesus, was life. And the life was the light of men. The light shines in the darkness. And the darkness has not overcome it. There was a man sent from God whose name was John. He came as a witness to bear witness about the light that all might believe through him. He was not the light but came to bear witness about the light. The true light which gives light to everyone was coming into the world. He was in the world and the world was made through him Yet the world did not know him. He came to his own, and his own people did not receive him. But to all who did receive him, who believed in his name, he gave the right to become children of God, who were born not of blood, nor of the will of the flesh, nor of the will of man, but God. This is God's holy, inspired, inerrant, and infallible word. Amen? Amen. Let's pray. Lord God, we need your help this morning. Our hearts are distracted. Sin is pulling on us even now. The cares of this world are crowding out, concern for the truth of your word. Satan is perhaps even now trying to undermine the preaching of this truth. But God, you are superior. You are stronger than the world, the flesh, and the devil. You've already given us life. You've called us together here to be your life in one body. God, may that not be for nothing. Would you bless us this morning as we listen to your word? Would you strengthen us, God? Would you increase the light within us Would you turn the volume all the way up? We ask these things in your son's name. Amen. As we began to see last week, the Gospel of John begins with the tale of two creations. Last week we saw the first creation. We saw that the Word was with God, that the Word was God, and that through Jesus, who is the Word... All things were created. I want to begin this morning's sermon by going back to Genesis 1, which we, we poked around in last week, and I want us to reread the creation account. But this time I want us to do it with our antennas up. I want us to pay extra 
careful attention to a few of the details that will really help us make sense of what John is saying here in chapter 1 and his prologue. So turn with me, please, back to Genesis chapter 1, verse 1. You'll remember that these words in the beginning, these are the same words that John uses to begin his gospel. In the beginning, God created the heavens and the earth. The earth was without form and void, and darkness was over the face of the deep. And the Spirit of God was hovering over the face of the waters. Pause. I want us to see here the importance of this moment in creation. It's the moment between the creation of the heavens and the earth and the, the, the moment that life enters into creation. You can keep reading and you see that the text continues like this. And God said, let there be light and then there was light. So here's what I want you to see this morning. It is only when light enters into the world that life enters into creation. It is only when light enters into the world that life enters into creation. It is from this point in the creation moving forward that the formless and empty void of an earth can begin to live. Before the light entered into creation, the world existed. That's what the text says. God creates the heavens and the earth. But the earth, earth was without form and void, and there was darkness. The darkness signifies a lack of life. But then God hit the cosmic light switch, and with the light came life. This connection between light and life is seen throughout the entire rest of the Bible. You probably didn't pick up on it in the scripture readings that we read here just a little while ago, but it was there in some of those verses. Let me give you some more. The psalmist says of God, for with you is the fountain of life. In your light, we see light. That's Hebrew poetry. That's parallelism. The first line says it one way. The second line says it another way. So in the first line, God is the fountain of life. In the second line, God is light. The book of Proverbs, chapter 6, verse 23. For this command is a lamp. This teaching is a light and a correction. And these words are instructions for life. Job, chapter 3, verse 20. Why is light given to those in misery and life to the bitter of soul? There's that Hebrew parallelism again, right? Job is saying, why do all the bad people get all the good things while I'm over here suffering? Why do these wretched people get life? And why do the bitter get life, uh, light? A little bit later in Job. God has delivered me from going down to the pit and I shall live to enjoy the light of life. God does all these things to a person, twice, even three times, to turn them back from the pit, that the light of life 
may shine upon them. And here you even see the contrast between life and light in the pit, which is death and darkness. Isaiah chapter 53. After he, was, after he has suffered, he will see the light of life and be satisfied. You can fast forward all the way to the Gospel of John in our text this morning. And you can see the connection once again. John chapter 1 verse 4. Turn back there with me. In him, in Jesus, was life. And the life was the light of men. Here we see John filling out, just like last week, Genesis 1, helping us to see where Christ was when we couldn't necessarily see him. Jesus is saying, you remember back in, excuse me, John is saying, you remember back in, in Genesis 1 where the earth was without form, it was void, there was darkness, there was no, and then light came in and then everything sprang to life. Do you remember when that happened? Guess what? That was Jesus. Not merely some divine force exuding itself out from God, but the Son of God Himself. And wouldn't it be great if we could just stop there, right? Jesus was there at creation. He gave life to this world. He gave life to all men. And then everything was just swell after that. Yeah, I said swell. I'm bringing that word back. Wouldn't, wouldn't it be fantastic if we just said that everything went smoothly after that. We just lived happily ever after. All men had life. Great. But you know that that's not the way it goes. As the drama of Scripture continues to unfold, it doesn't take long, Genesis 1 to Genesis 3, death makes its first appearance when our parents, Adam and Eve, fall into sin. Listen to how Paul, a couple of millennia after that, describes that event of the fall in the book of Romans. Listen to the language he uses. Therefore, just as sin came into the world through one man and death through sin, so death spread to all men. I want you to notice the contrast here between Paul's language and John's language. John tells us in this morning's verses that through Jesus, light and life entered into the world and was given to all men. Paul says through the fall... And because of sin, death re-entered the world and spread to all men. That's the contrast. Light and life, creation, all men. The fall, sin, death to all men. But then look at verse 5. In verse 5, John says, don't worry, the, the darkness will not, will not win. The light shines in the darkness and the darkness has not overcome it. Here, John is saying that although death and darkness, because of the fall, have made a very big push into the territory of light and life, they have not, and indeed they cannot, win the day. Why? Because in the eternal battle between light and darkness... Light is invincible. There is never a scenario where light and dark encounter one another and the dark wins. Think about this room 
at 11 p.m. Maybe I have to come up to the church late at night to do something. I walk in here. Ooh, it's scary in the sanctuary at night. It's creepy in here. Big room, weird noises, squirrels in the back. It's super dark. What do I do? I hit the light switch. You can come and hit these light switches a million times, and every single time that these lights come on, the darkness will lose. The light will win. Light always illuminates the darkest. The blackest abyss of the deepest recesses of outer space cannot overcome the triple-A battery-powered luminosity of a dollar store flashlight. So yes, because of sin and the fall, death has gained a foothold in this world. But it is not as though the light has been overcome. Enter John the Baptist. Look at verses 6 and 7. There was a man sent from God whose name was John. He came as a witness to bear witness about the light that all might believe through him. Now, if you're new to Christianity or you've been a Christian for a while and maybe you just weren't discipled well, you don't know the Bible uh, yeah, super well, you, you, you may not know who John the Baptist is. And I want you to know that uh, if John were here today, he would probably not be that bothered by you not knowing much about him. He might be bothered that you don't know your Bible very well, because uh, that's pretty important. But he wouldn't be bothered by you not knowing that much about him. Because John's whole purpose on this earth was to point away from himself. That was his whole shtick. That was his whole thing. He was constantly pointing people to Jesus. During his ministry, he came, he was a powerful prophet sent by God. He was preaching a very powerful message, calling all of Israel to repentance and faith. And people were so blown away by him and the things that he was saying and, and the power of God that was with him that people began to treat him like he was the light. That he had life within himself. So John was just constantly in the business of saying, no, 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 it's not about me. It's about Jesus. I'm not the bridegroom. I'm just the best man. I'm not worthy to tie his sandals. I must decrease so that he might increase. And the reason why John talked like this is because he knew that he was not the light. He knew that he was merely a witness to the light. Now, uh, what does it mean to be a witness? Well, you can see a hint of it here in the text in verse 7. It says, he is witnessing to the light so that all might believe through him. There's something about what a witness does that's supposed to help other people believe something. That's what John is doing. Well, simply put, a witness is someone who sees something or experiences something very important and then tells other people about it to aid them in their belief, right? So, for example, if you were at one of these, uh, if you were at a gas station down the road here and somebody came in and robbed the store while you were in there, uh, you might be called to give a testimony at a trial about that robbery so that the jury might believe that this incident happened in this way and that this person was guilty of this crime, so John is a witness to Jesus. He saw Jesus. He experienced Jesus as the light and the life. 
And he was supposed to go around giving testimony to the, to the people that he was who he says he was. This idea of being a witness to the reality of God, to the life of God, it didn't begin with John. He wasn't the first witness in the Bible. You can see this theme throughout the entire testimony of Scripture. So, for example, when God rescues Israel from slavery, when he forms them as a people on their way to the promised land, he says this to them. <coughs> I have revealed, that's the language of light. I have revealed and saved and proclaimed. I, and not some foreign God among you. It was me. You are my witnesses, declares the Lord, that I am God. So you've seen me. You've seen my miracles. You've experienced my power. You have been the beneficiaries of my covenantal love. And now I'm calling you as a nation, as a people that I have created to bear witness about me to the rest of the nations of the earth. When Moses went up on the mountain to meet with Yahweh, he came back down and he bore witness about what he experienced on the mountain through song, through the giving of the law. This is the reason why Hebrews chapter 3, verse 5 refers to him as a faithful witness in God's house. We're going to talk more about that in a minute. All of the prophets in the Old Testament are sent out as witnesses, not to the foreign nations, but to the nation of Israel. The people who should know these things, but who have forgotten them or who have been hardened to them because of sin. The prophets go, hey, uh, y'all are forgetting about something, right? God, his law, holiness, right? You see this stated explicitly, interestingly, in the New Testament. In Acts chapter 10, verse 43, uh, we, see something, we see some interesting language used about witnesses in the Old Testament. It says this, To Jesus, all the prophets, that's in the Old Testament, bear witness that everyone who believes in him receives forgiveness of sins through his name. So according to Peter, all the prophets in the Old Testament were not just bearing witness to God in some general sense, and not merely God the Father in particular, but also to God the Son. Hmm, how does that work? I mean, they didn't have the same understanding of the word, Jesus as the word, as we do. And yet the author of Hebrews says this about Moses. He says, Moses was faithful as a servant in all God's house, bearing witness to what would be spoken by God in the future. These Old Testament prophets were talking about Jesus. But their understanding of their own words was a little hazy. That's something we could talk about in another sermon. What I want you to see here this morning is that what was in the Old Testament, somewhat of a mystery, shrouded in darkness. The prophets could see Jesus, but only vaguely, only in a haze. That changed with John the Baptist. John the Baptist was the first prophet to bear witness about Jesus who didn't have to look forward through the haze, who didn't have to squint to make sense about the eternal incarnate word of God. He was the first one who could lay eyes on Jesus. He could see the light with his own two eyes. 
He could bear witness to it even as he was being illuminated by it. So what was John's testimony about Jesus? As he was bearing witness to the world, what was he saying? Well, you can see right here in the text. Verse 9. The true light, which gives light to everyone, was coming into the world. So here John is saying the same light from Genesis 1 the light that ushered life into creation, the light that gave you and everyone that you've ever known the spark of life, that light is back. He is re-entering the world to push back the darkness. This is the second act of creation. In Genesis 1, we have creation. In John chapter 1, we have recreation. But both of them are being carried out by the same word, by Jesus, the second person of the Trinity. One more thing about John before moving on. Uh, You should know that he was not the final witness to Jesus. Acts chapter 1, verse 8, speaking to the apostles. But you will receive power When the Holy Spirit has come upon you and you will be my witnesses in Jerusalem and in all Judea and Samaria and to the end of the earth. Now we saw this promise fulfilled. The the Spirit will fall on you, right? You'll be equipped to do this stuff. We saw it fulfilled in Acts chapter 2. You remember the tongues of fire? Wish we could have been there, right? But what you need to know is that... um, That promise wasn't just for the apostles. It wasn't just for the people who got to experience that overt outpouring of the Spirit. The promise is for every person who is indwelt by that same Holy Spirit that was so significantly displayed in Acts chapter 2. So if the Spirit of God is living in you, one of the reasons why the Spirit lives in you is to empower you to bear witness about Jesus to the world. Now you may be thinking, Sean, that doesn't make any sense. How can I bear witness to something that I haven't seen? The apostles, they were there. They saw Jesus. They witnessed his resurrected body. But here I am. What do you mean that I'm supposed to bear witness about Jesus? Well, it's true that you weren't there at the cross, okay? You didn't see Jesus die. You weren't a witness to his burial. You didn't see his raised body. You didn't touch it. But you have been saved. And your salvation is all the evidence you need to stand as a faithful witness to the reality of the gospel. You weren't there, but the gospel is true and you know it because Jesus saves you. Listen to the language that Paul uses In Romans 8.16, he says, The Spirit himself, the same Spirit that raised Christ from the grave, bears witness with our spirit that we are children of God. Did you notice that witness language there? It's the same language that we've been using. Same language that, that, that John uses here of John the Baptist. The Spirit bears witness with our spirit that we are children of God. What does it mean that we're children of God? It means that we've been saved. 
that we were buried with Christ, that we have been raised with Christ to newness of life. Whatever happened there on Calvary and then in the empty tomb, it has happened to us. And the Holy Spirit that lives in us tells us every second of every day that that actually happened, that it is true, because we have shared in that experience. And then as the Holy Spirit bears witness to us, we go out and bear witness to the nations. John the Baptist was, was not the last witness to Christ. You are. I am. We are. The church. Every person who will be indwelt by the Holy Spirit until Jesus comes back is called to be a witness to the nations just like John the Baptist was. It's incredible. And so as I was thinking through these things all the way down to verse 9 in my sermon prep this week, I was kind of jolted when I came to verse 10. When I'm preparing a sermon, I kind of just read through the text over and over and over again. I try to, I'm just trying to look, like, what am I seeing? What am I, what am I not seeing, right? What's going on here? I kind of turn the paper over in my hands until it starts to crumble, until it starts to fall apart. And every time I got to verse 10, it was just, it was like a jolt, It was surprising. It didn't make sense. I mean, in verses 1 through 9, John is airing out the glory of Jesus Christ. He's extolling the majesty of his entrance into the world, his ability to save us, to illuminate us. And so I would expect that when I came to verse 10, I would read something like this. Jesus re-entered into creation to push back against death and darkness, and when everyone saw him, they celebrated They were happy. They were full of joy. They heralded the arrival of Jesus and they received him in honor and glory because they recognized him as the life giver. That's what I would expect to read in verse 10. But that's not what we find there at all. Look there with me. He was in the world, and wouldn't you know it, the world was made through him, And yet the world did not know him. How is that possible? In verse 10, John says that the world was made through Jesus. And I think John puts that in there so that it'll hit you. It's supposed to hit you extra hard. How can it be that they didn't recognize him. It's like when you're reading Genesis chapter 3 and you're reading Genesis 1 and God created the world and he created the garden and he put man in the garden and then man sinned and what did they do? They tried to hide from God in the garden? It's the same kind of ridiculousness. When you come to verse 10, it doesn't make any sense and the only way that this doesn't make sense to us is if we do not have a category for the deceptive nature of of sin. Sin not only kills us, friends, it also deceives us. It blinds us. It keeps us from seeing the truth, even when it's staring us right in the face. Even when the God of the universe comes down to us, we cannot recognize him because of sin. We live in an age of uh, scientism. 
if you've never heard the phrase scientism before, it uh, is defined in this way. It is an excessive belief, notice the language there, excessive belief in the power of scientific knowledge and techniques. So we live in this post-scientific revolution world, this post-enlightenment world, where it's not at all uncommon for people to think about the world as a, as a sort of closed system. Uh, nothing more than a vast array of cosmic levers and pulleys, right? All the machinery of the cosmos is just operating according to the laws of physics, which just, by the way, happened to be formed by accident. And when we think about the world in this way, we assume that if we simply maximize the use of logic and reason, we will just always be able to look at things and understand them for what they are. Sure, some of our human weaknesses and biases can get in the way sometimes, but scientism says as soon as we tighten up the tools of our cognition and do away with the vestiges of superstition, like religion, we will be able to see the world clearly and assess it rightly. That's science. But friends, what I've just described to you is not science at all. That's philosophy. And it's dead wrong. Science is a tool that has been given to us by God. It's born out of the rational nature of God himself. It allows us to study his creation and to learn and to cultivate the earth for his glory. We praise God for science. But like every good gift, this side of heaven, science is limited. There's a whole lot of things that science can't do. It can't explain beauty. It can't define truth. It can't help us agree on what is good or evil, for that matter. The scientific method will not get you there. But according to the worldview of scientism... If God came down from heaven, we could examine him objectively. We could assess his claims empirically. We would just use our untainted reason to make an unbiased, purely rational decision about his existence. We would just evaluate the evidence. This is false. Verse 10 tells us that God did come down from heaven. And we could not see him for who he truly was. In contrast to scientism, listen to scripture. Men, by their unrighteousness, suppress the truth. For what can be known about God is plain to them. Notice that language. Not evident, but obscure. Not you can see it if you really squint and look sideways and pay extra close attention. No. What can be known about God has been made plain. Why? Because God has shown it to them. God's not up in the cosmos trying to hide himself, trying to do a a, a ridiculous deified version of, uh, you know, peekaboo. Am I here? Am I not here? No, God has plainly revealed himself to us in a thousand different ways. And scientism says, if it's plain, we'll see it, we'll understand it, we'll believe it. But scripture says, no, no, no. Sin gets in the way of that big time. The book of Romans says that the reality of God has already been made plain to us, but we suppress 
that which we can clearly perceive. That's just what John is saying in verse 10. The world was made through Jesus, therefore it should be obvious to us that Jesus is the light and life of God. But when Jesus came down to us, when he entered into creation, we couldn't see it. And we couldn't see it for bad reasons. We couldn't see it because we didn't want to see it. We couldn't see it because his light would crowd out our darkness. We couldn't see it because his life would mean the end of our death, and we love our death. So we suppress it. In verse 11, we see that the very people who should have received Jesus, the Jews, they rejected him. Look there. He came to his own, and his own people did not receive him. I understand his own there to be now moving from more general all of creation to specific the Jews. We're going to talk more about the Jews rejecting Jesus at length through the Gospel of John, so I'm not going to talk about that very much now. For now, I'd just like to point out that this same phenomenon of Jesus being like there, present amongst the people, and then being rejected by them, that, that same phenomenon is happening today. It's happening all across this city right now, this very morning. It's all over the American South. The very people who should see Jesus most clearly. How many churches do we have in Decatur? Last count, 300? 300 churches? In a city of 50,000 people? Quick math on that. Grant, go. How many people per church? 300 churches, 50,000 people. Huh? That's 167 people per church? Is that right? Somebody check his math. Did he get it right? You don't know. How is it that so many people in such a distinctly advantageous position to hear from Jesus can so easily reject him? They go to church twice a week. They grow up going to Awanas and VBS. They live in the moral milieu of Southern Christian culture. They eat Chick-fil-A. <laughs> and yet they don't receive him. The light has washed over them in a thousand different ways, and yet they've still chosen darkness. Tens of thousands of people here in our very own city are being bombarded with the light of Christ every second of every day of their lives. Yes, I know that there are, there's a ton of bad religion here, but there's enough true light in this place to make it almost inconceivable that the people of this city do not know Jesus, and yet they don't. That's the testimony of many people here in this church this morning. Some of you grew up loving Jesus from as early as you can remember. And I love those testimonies. And like, I know that they don't last long. Like if you were to stand up and share that testimony on a Sunday morning, it'd be like 30 seconds. Yeah, my mom and dad were faithful. And I've always known Jesus. And I'm done, right? Like, praise God for that. I want that testimony for my kids. But that's not everyone's testimony. Some of us remember a time when we didn't know Jesus. Many of us remember a time when we loved the darkness. Many of us grew up in the Christian South and we remember being bombarded by the light. 
your Christian grandma, your high school football coach, your friends, that kind of wonky youth group preacher who was a little misguided, but who was still giving you the gospel. You remember all these things and how you just rejected them all outright. You closed your eyes to the light. But then one day you opened your eyes. And you're here today as a Christian. One day you stopped going like this, trying to block out the sun, and then you opened your eyes and tried to look directly into it. Why? Why one day rejecting Jesus, the next day loving him? What, what brought about that change? One day choosing death, the next day eternal life. One day loving darkness, the next day staring into the sun. Well, look at verses 12 and 13. But to all who did receive him, who believed in his name, he gave the right to become children of God, who were born not of blood, nor of the will of the flesh, nor of the will of man, but of God. If you're here this morning and you're a Christian, verse 12 says that you are a Christian because you believed in Jesus. You believe that he is the light, the life, the eternal word, God, creator, king, savior, friend. And when you believed, you received the right to become a child of God. That's incredible. I wanted to like pause here in my sermon prep and do like an hour on that alone. Like it should take our breath away. You have received the right. Sean, I already had the right. No, you didn't. You receive the right to become a child of God. But moving on from that, let me just ask you, why did you change your mind? I mean, from verse 12, it's clear that you're able to do this. You're able to receive that right by believing in his name. But why did you believe? Why did you go from unbelief to belief? Why did you stop suppressing the truth? Well, we're going to let Jesus answer that for us in chapter 3. A little bit of a cliffhanger here. But make sure you're here when we talk about it in chapter 3. For this morning, I just want you to note the contrast between verses 11 and 12. Verse 11, those who did not receive Jesus. And really, verse 10, verses 10 and 11, couldn't see Jesus, didn't receive him, didn't believe in his name, and therefore, they were not children of God. Verse 12, people who did believe, who did receive, and therefore were able to be called children of God. You see that contrast? Brothers and sisters, it is that black and white. There is no third way. There is no centrist position in relation to a holy and righteous God. You are either his child because you are in Christ or you are not his child because you have rejected his son. So which one is it? Are you verse 11 or are you verse 12? Sean, I'm here. I'm in church this morning. Obviously, I'm verse 12. Don't be silly. You know as well as I know that you can sit in these pews every Wednesday and every Sunday 
and still be a verse 11. You know that you can do all the right things. You can pray the prayers, you can read the books, you can go to the services, you can give your money away and still be completely rejecting of Jesus Christ. Think about the tainted history of this state that we live in. Think about the slave owners who had no problem reading their Bibles, praying, giving money to the poor, and then going back onto their plantations and doing the horrible things that they did. You can be in church and be in eleven. I feel this morning an urgent need to demand of you that you figure out where you belong. I know that you think you have time. I know that you think it's okay to live in this kind of in-between state where you're not so sure where you're just comfortable living with the doubts. You're comfortable letting your pet sins run your life. You think you'll figure it out at some point. Maybe God will come and really wake you up one day. Friends, that day is today. Today is the day of salvation. So, if you are at all unsure, today is the day to get sure. If you are even slightly inclined to receive Christ, today is the day to put your full trust in him. If you can see even the tiniest sliver of the light of Jesus Christ, today is the day to embrace that light, to receive the life of Jesus, to take your rightful place as a child of God. If you're here this morning and you're not a Christian, you should know that Jesus has made a way for you to be his child. And it was a most terrible path for him to take. He had to enter into the darkness of death in order to make a way for you to have life and light. He had to go down into the black abyss of the wrath of God so that you could be called a child of God. He did that. And he did it because he loves you and because he wants you with him in his life For all of eternity. He wants you to be his child. He wants you to dwell with him in his household forever. And he suffered significantly on the cross so that you could do that. So do not wait. Let his light give you life this morning. Let's pray. Lord, your word stuns us. Every time we look into it, we are more illuminated. Your word crowds out the darkness of confusion in our hearts. You help us to understand ourselves more clearly. You help us to understand this world more accurately. You give us wisdom to function here in the land of the darkness until you take us home to be with you in the light. So, Father God, as we, as one body, move to sing your praises and then go back out into this dark world, we pray that you will illuminate us, that you will allow us to be faithful witnesses, that we will let our light shine before men. We pray this in your son's name. Amen. Let's